this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. My name is Chad Hall, and I've spent most of my life circling paragraphs, poking holes in stories, and taking apart things that I can't always put back together. Whether it's in books or true crime documentaries, conversations or trending topics, I find gaps that most people breeze past. So this is a place to take my questions and to try to understand them. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. Sometimes I miss something or I change my mind. This is my podcast. It matters, but it doesn't. Oh boy, oh boy, do I have a lot of things to share this week. I was very curious boy this week, very curious, and took a lot of notes, read a lot of things, and turns out a lot of them were interesting enough for me to want to share them. I mentioned before that I'm trying to use this Rome research thing to track these ideas as I go through the week so that I have a, a place where they're collected when I get ready to do an episode, so I have things to pull from. Turns out, so far, it's working pretty good looking at the number of notes that I have available to me right now. Another advantage to it is I can do something at the beginning of the show that I haven't done before, which is give you a general idea of where we're going. What are we going to talk about? Most of the time, I didn't know. It doesn't mean that the plan I lay out is the plan we're going to end up taking, but I can give you an idea of why you might want to uh, maybe not switch to another podcast. So today we're going to talk about Italian superstitions and their connections to paganism. I'm going to talk about James Joyce's descriptions of eternity, and we're going to talk about what happens when two books that you're reading reach out and hold hands. But, 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 before we do that, there's some stuff that I want to talk about first before I get into those things. These are some smaller things. One of them is of a more personal nature, and the other one is a an early recommendation. Early in the sense that early in the episode. <laughs> in every other way, this recommendation will be late. You'll understand what I mean. So first of all, if you have uh, been following this podcast, listening to it for a while, if you even go back to some of my older writing, you may be familiar with what I always refer to as the darkest period of my life, the time when I was dealing with extreme, extreme anxiety. And actually, if there's people who used to, that are listening now that used to listen to Random Badassery, you may remember an episode that Lamb and I did where I started the episode and I said I had just had a panic attack right before. The reason I bring up that one specific incidence, incident, instance and incident, Two different words, I just combine them. The reason I bring that up is because that particular panic attack was one of the two of the worst that I actually ever had. And the other one was on a treadmill in front of a cardiologist. So I suppose if you're going to have something go crazy with your heart, which panic attacks will mess with your heart, it's good to do it in front of a cardiologist, right? Well... The reason I'm talking about this is because it has been about two years since I've had what I referred to as panic attacks. I have since 
started to question that. I have since started to question if it had something to do with uh, sleep apnea, because once I started sleeping with a CPAP, this all went away. And I always, uh, always had trouble attributing this stuff to panic attacks. Not to say that I don't have an anxious personality. I don't have anxious tendencies that I don't worry, but I don't remember ever having prior to this, of course, I don't remember ever in my life before that having physiological reactions to my stress. So what I'm saying, I think, is that my anxiety, as I've come to define it over time, is not healthy in the sense that you shouldn't be an anxious person because it's bad for it's bad for your your heart in the long run, and many other things. Of course, it's bad for your psychology and so forth. But I don't think it was abnormal. I don't think it was much worse than the average person's bad anxiety. It's a weird way to say that. But if you were to take a group of people who have what you could qualify as difficult or bad anxiety, mine was normal with those people. Whereas if I were to take some of the physiological um, things that happened to me during that darkest period and define that as panic attacks and coming from anxiety, and I wasn't normal in that group. I was on the far end of it. So something happened this week that made me redefine all of this again. I had another one. I had another attack. And like I said, it had been two years. And it was strange. I'm not going to go into a ton of details because I'm sure you don't care that much about my personal life. But I was sitting in front of the computer like I am right now, just doing something mundane. I was adding photos to my website. Nothing crazy, just putting up photos. That's it. Tedious. And yes, I probably sat in front of the monitor for a lot longer than I should, because I'm a person that if I sit in front of the monitor for too long, my heart rate does go up about 30 beats per minute after after about an hour or two in front of the computer. It's just the way that my particular eyes interact with screens. We're not looking at solid objects. These things in front of us are blinking light thousands of times a second. I happen to unfortunately be one of the people that that has a mild effect on. So it makes it uncomfortable for me. So I try not to do it. So maybe I had been sitting in front of the computer for a little too long because I think I was there for like four hours. So definitely pushing it there. I had eaten some stuff that had some sugar. Not that I don't eat sugar, but if I do have too much sugar in one day, I can feel that in my heart rate. There's all these small little things that could have been contributing factors, but none of them alone could explain what happened, which was I was sitting calmly adding photos to my website and suddenly my heart rate shot through the roof and my heart was pounding in my chest, pounding like I had just run away from a lion. And it it relates directly to those two times before. Those two times before, it was the same thing. And I was calm at first. I was calm at first because I was used to things elevating my heart rate. When I would have this happen, I would sit. And if I relaxed for a little while, it would go down a little bit. And if it went down a little bit, I knew that it would go down a little bit more and more. And I could eventually get it back to normal. But that wasn't happening here. It was staying high. When you go through enough anxiety and enough accelerated heart rates, you learn to kind of be a pretty good guesstimator of what your heart rate is. I know what 110 feels like. I know what 70 feels like. I'm not exact. If I say I'm about 70, yeah, I might be like 74, 78. If I say 110, I might be 115, but I'm close. And I knew that this was higher than both of those. A a really good, healthy resting heart rate for a non-athlete is uh, about 77, down to, you know, all the way down to 67. Some people just have naturally low heart rates. You can have a higher one, but the closer you get to 100, the more that's considered unhealthy because it's just a little too fast. At least this is what I've been told. Obviously, not a doctor. So one of the worries when your heart rate is going fast and you don't have control over why it's going fast is obviously fear of heart attack, right? Normal blood pressure, you want to be below 120 over 80. So if you're 110 over 75, you're good, you're golden. You're a little bit above that, you're a little high. The higher it gets, the worse it gets. So before I 
called the advice nurse. I took my medication. I take a beta blocker. Beta blocker helps to lower your blood pressure, and it also helps to keep your heart rate low. And obviously, with what was going on, I was an hour before I would normally take the pill. I took it an hour early. So this is also another reason that will come up later. Just keep keep a pin on the fact that I was an hour away from the time I normally take my medicine. The reason I bring up taking the medicine is because by the time I got through the automated system and was finally talking to a human being, and the human being asked me to take my blood pressure, it had gone down a little bit. It was still pounding in my chest, but it wasn't pounding as hard as it was before. But when we measured it, it was 152 over 93 with a heart rate of 163. So once again, normal, good resting heart rate, 67 to 77, I was over double that. And blood pressure, 120 over 80 or below. I was 152 over 93. Not good. Also considering the fact that, like I said, things had gone down. So that means it was higher. But in the time that I was on the phone with the, the vice nurse, just anytime I have uh, give the same advice, anytime you have something going on with your chest, if you have health insurance, just call. Even if they tell you you're fine, good, you're fine. Then Then you can relax. It's always better to call. So about an hour later, it was down to 117 over 79 with a heart rate of 89. So well within the health, not even the healthy range, the good range on my heart, on my, uh, my blood pressure, my heart rate's still a little elevated, but understandable because there was adrenaline in my system. From my experience with panic attacks, it can take sometimes two, three hours to get adrenaline out of your system. So your heart rate will still stay elevated when you go through something like that for a little while. 89 is not a bad place to be elevated for a couple hours. 163, yeah, you don't want to be there for a couple hours. You don't want to be there for 10 minutes, to be honest. So anyways, where I'm getting with this, panic, this is the words I was using, panic attack when I called, talked to a doctor the next day, we talked about everything. Turns out that these are not panic attacks. That what I'm suffering from is something that no one had ever pointed out to me before as even being possible, not even the cardiologist something called rebound tachycardia. Now, rebound tachycardia, there's two kinds. When you when you take a medication for a long time, you know, years, months, whatever, and you stop taking it, you can have rebound tachycardia. Or you can be like me. You're taking a 24-hour pill, and it's been 23 hours. And you're about to go from 23 to 24, and there's not enough of that medicine left in your system, and then rebound tachycardia. And what rebound tachycardia means is, in the case of a beta blocker, I'm taking something that controls the the speed and the blood pressure, right? It controls it from not narcotically by putting it to sleep, which is what, you know, narcotic dopes you up. This is not a narcotic. What it does is it stops your heart from, essentially from producing adrenaline. So you don't go up that high. but so you've got this thing, right? Think of your heart as this like animal, right? That wants to run. It's this wild steed and it wants to run. And normally when it runs, let's, let's use the, the heart rate as a miles per hour. Normally when this horse runs, it runs at 77 miles an hour. And you don't want it there. You want it lower than that, right? So for whatever reason, you've caged it. You don't want it running away at all. And the cage is the medicine. Well, the moment that the medicine gets weak enough, that stallion breaks free. But that stallion has been pushing up against that wall with all of its might. So when it comes out of that gate, it's not going 77 miles an hour. It's going 120, 130, 140, 163. That's rebound tachycardia. Your medicine is holding you at a certain level. And then your body doesn't just move up to the level where it would normally be. It rebounds. So it comes out harder and faster out of the gate. And that's what happened to me. Pretty cool. Not pretty cool to go through, <laughs> but pretty cool to know. Because to be honest, even though I'm grateful for all of the lessons and about how to deal with mental health that I learned going through that period, I was always confused by the fact that most of the things that people suggested to me never worked. Do this breathing exercise. Never changed anything. Because I was having an actual physiological problem that everybody thought was mental. 
that doesn't mean that anxiety didn't play into it. Because if you were, you know, you think that maybe if I know my anxiety can jump my heart rate up to, you know, 30 beats per minute faster, maybe rebound tachycardia has only taken me to 133 beats per minute. But then the moment that happens, my anxiety kicks in and now I'm at 163. Well, 133 is not that dangerous for me because for my height and my age and my weight, about 140, 145 is my optimal heart rate for exercise. So at 133, I'd be just in a really good exercise. At 163, not so much. So that that anxiety does play in there, that 30, that 30 beats per minute, sometimes even 40 beats per minute if it's severe anxiety, that can play a dangerous role. So just thought I'd share that because I talk a lot about that dark period and I I had this moment when I was waiting between the, the night that it happened and the next day when I actually spoke to a doctor, this moment of thinking like, oh my God, here we go again. I'm back in this. I got to go through it again. I thought I was, I thought I was done. I thought I was out of this. I got to go back into it. And that is terrifying. And you can understand why people who go through long illnesses, why they suffer with so much depression, because like hope feels like it's pulled away from you. Anyways, I don't want to go, I don't want to go too much deeper on this stuff this early in the episode. I want to bum you out this early. So I'm just going to switch topics right now. And I'm going to switch topics literally almost in the exact opposite direction. I said I was going to give you an early recommendation, early in the sense, like I said, in the episode, but I'm probably one of the last people to recommend what I'm going to recommend. And I'm not even sure how to recommend it because I worry sometimes when I really enjoy something, when you overplug it, that maybe you set the bar too high for people and they're, they go watch it thinking it's the best thing in the world and they're like, man, it's okay. I hate that. I hate doing that. So the way I'm going to give this recommendation is I'm going to say everybody and their mother has recommended this. And because of that, and me being a prick that I can be, I avoided it. I avoided it not only because everybody was recommended, I also avoided it because it didn't sound like anything I was interested in. And it wasn't about anything that's like my wheelhouse. And what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about Ted Lasso, which is a half hour comedy on Apple TV Plus. And it's, it's about a guy that's a super positive football coach who gets called over to England to coach football, but different football. <laughs> what we would call as Americans soccer, what the rest of the world calls football. So he's going from American football to football, soccer. He doesn't know anything about soccer. The way I heard it described to me was uh, that you think you know what it's going to be. And here's this guy from Kansas. He's going to be some hayseed dumbass, and that's going to be the funny part because he doesn't know anything about soccer. Nope. Obviously, it's part of the show, but yeah, the jokes don't really come from that. In fact, I have trouble even calling it a comedy. It is a comedy because it is funny, and it's in it's there are structured jokes, but there's so much depth to this show. So here's how I'm going to, this is how I'm going to structure the recommendation. I didn't want to watch it. I have no interest in, interest in soccer just because I don't know, like Ted, I don't know much about it. As an American, as many Americans, we didn't really grow up with it as part of our culture. And even though I may enjoy watching sports every so often, I watched baseball today, but just it, nothing about it pulled me in. And I don't know why I decided to watch it, but I said, you know what, I'll watch one episode. And it was about, mm, I want to say 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. I watched one episode. And at three in the morning, I seriously considered staying up to watch the four episodes that I had left. I wanted to watch it all at once. Yeah, that's, that's as far as I'm going to go with the recommendation. I don't know how you're going to connect with it. I connected with it really, really strongly. And I think what it is, is there's a, there's a beautiful mix of simplicity and complexity. It doesn't try too hard to be complex, but it also avoids so much of the simplicity and so much of the cliches. And I think the number one thing, though, this is this is where I'm going to end the recommendations. I'm just going to tell you the number one thing about the show that stands out for me. 
that maybe is the reason that I connected with it so strongly. There are two kinds of characters. There are flat characters and the round characters. Flat characters are characters who have no depth. So somebody who's a, basically a stereotype, you know, like if you have the hero and the hero has complexity and then there's the comedic relief sidekick who you never hear any backstory about and you never find out anything about and they do exactly what you'd expect them to do. They're a flat character. Or if you are the, you, know, you have the main character going into a diner and he's served by a waitress named Flo and she just does normal waitressy things and you only see her very briefly, she's a flat character. You know, there's there's no no depth there. Now, you need flat characters and you need round characters. It's not good versus bad. You know, when you, like I said, you have a guy go into a diner and he's only going to be in the diner very briefly and he's going to have a conversation with the character B, you know, character A and character B are going to have a conversation. You don't really have time to flesh out the waitress because for all intent and purposes, flat characters serve as props. They're part of a scene but they're not the focus of the scene. This is one of the problems with cliched writing. Cliched writing gives you one round character, which is your main character, and everybody else is flat. You know, you watch these where we have two women talking, and one woman has all these strong opinions, but the other woman in the scene is literally just saying nothing interesting. She's saying, I can't believe what my boss did. And the other one goes, what did he do? The other character is just there to set up the first character. They're just their flat character. In a bad, cliched piece of writing, you have one round character and you have everybody else's flat. In really bad writing, everybody's flat, <laughs> even the main character. I personally believe that the more round characters that you can work into a piece of writing, the better and the more real and the more original it becomes. Because flat characters rely on stereotypes. But the moment you break out of that stereotype and you have two characters that are round or three characters around or four characters who are round interacting, things happen that are not stereotypical. Because round characters, what makes them very interesting is they're human, which means they all want something different. So if you have one character who's trying to hit on another character, Character A is trying to hit on character B, but character B has to urinate. That's an interesting scene because now you have tension. Another way that round characters are good, which is where I'm getting with this, is it takes away the simplicity of stereotype morality. And what I mean by that is good guy, bad guy, white hat, black hat. It's boring, right? That's not the way the world really works. Everybody is complex. So you take a movie like the movie that I love, The Crossing Guard, the movie Sean Penn directed, starring David Morse, a highly, highly underrated actor, David Morse, and Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston. What's amazing about this movie is that none of the characters, the main characters, obviously there's some flat characters, but none of the main characters are flat. So the basic premise of that movie is Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston used to be married. And then their little girl was hit by a drunk driver, David Morse. David Morse goes to jail, and Jack Nicholson can't get over it. Houston and him get divorced. And now they find out that David Morse is being released from prison. He's served his sentence, and Jack Nicholson is going to kill him. Okay? Now, here's how that would work if Jack Nicholson is your round character and everybody else is flat. Jack hunts him down. He's a piece of shit. He shoots him. He kills him. He gets back together with his wife, who's just been waiting for that thing to heal their relationship. That's shit writing. You've seen a lot of movies like that. I'm not going to tell you what happens in The Crossing Guard, but here's how The Crossing Guard deals with that differently. Jack Nicholson is he's a tortured guy. He's in pain. David Morse is actually the main character and not Jack Nicholson. And he feels guilty. And he's actually a good dude who messed up. And he feels terrible. And he's tortured by it. And Angelica Houston, she still cares about her ex-husband. She's not the stereotypical ex-wife. She still cares about him. She's remarried. She's not still in love with him, but she still cares about him. So now you have these three incredibly complex characters that all want something different. Houston wants Jack Nicholson to let it go. 
Jack Nicholson wants to kill David Morse. David Morse just wants to be left alone. He doesn't even want to interact with other human beings because he hates himself. And now you put those three people together and you see what happens. That's interesting writing. And if you want to create something original, all you have to do is swap out one of those characters, put in a different character, add more characters, because every time you change the dynamic between round characters, you have a different story. That's what makes Ted Lasso work. I can only think of one character who's flat, one character who's just a douchebag and will probably always be one. Everybody else is a mixture. I don't know. So go check it out. That's 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 where I'm going to go with the first, <laughs> I guess it's the first half of this episode. And if you guys watch Ted Lasso, let me know. Let me know what you think. Or if you've already seen it, which is probably more likely. <laughs> it seems like everybody's already seen it. I would say this. I think it's worth just paying for Apple, Apple TV, almost at Apple Music, Apple TV Plus for one month to watch that show and see what it's about. That's, that's how, how much I liked it. Okay, let's go on. Let's move on. Where's, where's this? Where are we going with this next stuff? Let's talk a little bit about the book thing, right? When I said books reach out and they touch each other. Well, that's a bad way to say that. <laughs> they reach out and they connect. So I was reading this book. I've been reading this book called The Pleasures of Reading in a Distracted Age by Alan Jacobs. And there's one little, this one little part where he talks about the word studio and how the definition of the word studio has changed. Now, we, we know words, this is not abnormal. Words change all the time. Words change meaning. Sometimes words go to opposites. <laughs> like, for example, literally. Everybody says literally, when most of the time they mean figuratively, which is literally the opposite. <laughs> literally means it really did happen. So it literally blew me away. No, no, it didn't. <laughs> Unless you took flight into the air or took a shotgun blast to the chest, it literally didn't blow you away. It figuratively blew you away. One of those other words, actually, is down. You might not know this, but down kind of used to mean up. <laughs> so a, a down is, in, in, in certain parts of the world, still is a word for a hill. So, for example, in the Kentucky Derby, famous horse race, it takes place at a track called Churchill Downs. That means Churchill Hills. <laughs> Before down was a direction, it was a word for a hill. So what happened is if you fell while you were on a down, on a hill, you fell off the hill or you fell off down. And over time, that off on off down, it fell off. <laughs> and the word just became down. You fell down. And that's how we got down, and that's how the word changed. So studio, Alan Jacobs, I think he's quoting something from Ivan Ilyich, and he says that a studio, which you you may be familiar with the word, and uh, that it has the same root as words like study and student and stud muffin. Okay, maybe not the last one, but S-U-D, stud, stewed. We know what that means, Right to study something. We put in effort into learning it. You know, a student is a learner. It's to study is to learn. Studio, theoretically, before it became a studio apartment, a studio was a place to learn. Art studio, dance studio. Well, there's an obsolete definition in, in the Oxford English Dictionary from the 17th century that says studio, affection, friendliness, devotion to another's welfare, partisan sympathy, desire, inclination, pleasure, or interest felt in something. So to study something, to, to studio something, was to be friendly towards it. Which kind of makes sense if you know what the word, what the etymology of the word, like philosophy is. Philo, Sophia. Philo, love. Sophia, knowledge. Love of knowledge. Philosophy is the love of knowledge. So I was reading that. I thought that was interesting. That makes sense to me, like I said, because of the philosophy thing. And then I'm reading a book that is completely unrelated. Nothing to do with reading, nothing to do with word etymologies, nothing to do with studying or learning. <laughs> it's just a completely different book. And it was a book 
about folk magic. And in the book, they talked about the symbolism, the meaning of certain colors. And one of the colors is yellow. Yellow, joy, learning, creativity, imagination, communication, the mind, friendship. And then that that just kind of knocked me back. Wait a minute. Yellow means both learning and friendship. Studio means both learning and friendship. Weird. Now I wouldn't I wouldn't clarify that as a synchronicity. But that's that's like when I talk about like journals and how journals collide things. Well, reading collides things too. You know, like what's happening in a journal is really the same thing that's happening when you're reading, except you're putting it on paper. That suddenly these tendrils of knowledge connect. And it's just, it's the coolest thing. You know, like it's, the, it's not going to change my life or anything, but wow, didn't I just read something that made a similar connection between those two words? Where the hell was that? Oh, it was in this book over here about reading. How weird. Just really strange how books seem to be able to communicate to each other. So I mentioned the other book was this book on folk magic. Well, that's where I'm going with this next thing that I want to share with you. I I don't know if I've ever shared this before, but my heritage, I'm 50% Sicilian. So 50% Italian. My grandparents were born in this country. My parents were born in this country. I was born in this country. I'm not uber Italian. Uh, I didn't grow up with a ton of that stuff. You know, but I, I did, I shouldn't say that. I did grow up with it. I just didn't adopt a lot of it. I'm very American. And what I found interesting, I picked up this book, by the way, the book is called Italian Folk Magic by Mary Grace Farron or Farron. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. F-A-H-R-U-N. And something I want to clarify <laughs> that I think is going to make the things I'm going to share a little bit easier to to understand that maybe people who aren't Italian don't understand. If I were to really boil down Italian culture, I would say if I were going to if I were going to do it in three words, I would say food, fucking and luck. That's it. <laughs> everything everything else fits in one of those three places. I don't know. I think if if anybody out there is also part Italian or full Italian, you feel me. <laughs> you know what I mean. I want to focus on that luck thing there because when you when you read about folk magic or any any sort of magic, it's not solely focused on good luck, bad luck. But it seems like the Italian culture is it's everything in their folk knowledge does hover around the idea of good luck, bad luck. We'll go we'll go into that a little bit more. There's a couple of detours I want to take first. So one of the one of the detours I want to take is into the pagan roots in Italian culture. Pagan might not actually be the right word. I'm just not sure what the right word is to use here. What I mean is uh, pre-Christian roots in the culture. And it's so intertwined with the Catholicism, that they, they, there's these things that are very common Italian superstitions that are partially rooted in Catholicism and partially rooted in something pre-Christian. You know, the, the, there's Italians that believe in Jesus and Mary and Joseph, and they also believe in the Roman gods. They also believe that there's a, a goddess of the hearth that protects the home. There's these weird overlaps that well, they were never talked about when I was growing up. There are definitely some things that we did that I didn't know came from these pre-Christian roots. But that overlap of that Christianity and that pre-Christianity is something that you see in other cultures too. For example, the Haitians and the Creoles. You see a lot of mixing of pagan with Catholicism. You see a lot of mixing of African religions and Catholicism. So, for example, you had slaves when they would sing in in the fields, they would sing hymns. All these things mix. This is an, this is an example of, of masking things so that you can understand why these things mix sometimes. When they would sing in the in the in the fields, they would sing hymns. 
and they would sing hymns because the hymns were, they were kind of a mask. So all the white people hear them singing this hymn and they go, oh, okay, they're just singing songs to, to the Lord. But what they're really singing is, please, somebody come and save us. And that's why the, the, the field songs, they would sing about Samson, who was put in chains, and they would sing about Moses, who freed the slaves, you know, let my people go. And that carried on into reggae music, where you hear frequent references to Exodus, the, the leaving of the slaves. So another way to mask things like that would be for you to take your pagan gods and pair them with saints. So you could talk about saints, but when you were talking about saints, you were talking coded about the gods that you weren't supposed to be able to have. So for example, in, in, in voodoo, you had the loa, the deities. So you had, uh, like, for example, uh, Simbi the Magi. You wouldn't call him Simbi the Magi if you were out in public. you call him St. Christopher. Baron Samdi. you call him St. Gerard. Papa Legba, my personal favorite. The gatekeeper between the worlds of the living and the dead. St. Peter. But these weren't one-to-one. It wasn't always just St. Peter's. You know, he's also connected to St. Anthony and St. Lazarus. So it was a way, at first, a way to disguise. But I think over time, what happens is those things become mixed. And I think that's what happened in the Italian culture, is you had the pre-Christians, whatever pagan religion the Italians were. I don't think they were all uh, Roman religion. There was probably a bunch of other, you know, you didn't have, you didn't have unified culture at the time. So there was probably a bunch of everybody had individual religions, you know, like one, one town could have a different religion than another town. And then here comes the Catholic Church. So maybe at first they disguised stuff by connecting it to the things that the Catholics were talking about. And then over time, they became the same thing. They became intertwined. They became connected. So you could believe in the ideas of the Catholic Church, but also believe in, in superstitions which technically would be negated. One belief would negate the other, but we have this idea for cognitive dissonance where we can believe two contrasting things. So when I start like unraveling this, like I said earlier, there's some things I grew up with that I never really thought about, but they have like these pre-Christian roots. So one thing we used to say, if, you're, if your left hand was itching, you were going to get money. And if your right hand was itching, you were going to lose some money. This is these strange things, right? That you don't you don't know, and maybe the people that are that are telling you these things don't even know where they come from. But one thing I knew is when you cooked an artichoke, you always cooked at least two, and no matter what, it always had to be an even number. So if you were going to cook three, you cooked four. If you cook four, you were going to cook. I mean, if you cooked five, you were going to cook six. Always an even number. Didn't know why. No idea. Turns out it's because artichokes are a symbol of love, specifically romantic love. And you eat artichokes to attract a love relationship. But it's bad luck to cook them in odd numbers because love is about pairing. Two things, right? It's about pairing. And pairing are even numbers. Another thing, this one I always thought was strange. You're never supposed to give someone a knife or scissors or anything like that. And if you did, they had to give you something back. They had to give you money. So like when I was a kid, you know, like my uncle or my grandfather, they give me a knife, a little pocket knife. I always had to give them a penny. And I didn't know why. I don't even know if they knew why. But it's because when you give someone a knife, a scissor, or a cutting tool of some sort, it symbolizes cutting of ties between the two people. So by giving that money, you're maintaining the relationship. We didn't, we didn't do this particular one, but I used to see this in Italian homes all the time. You probably see them in Italian homes all the time. You probably see them in, you know, when people design like, oh, we designed this place to look like an Italian villa. You'll see these things hanging in the kitchen. You'll see a broom, handmade broom. You'll see braided garlic. And you'll see a string of dried peppers. What all this comes from is all three of those are to protect you from bad luck, protect your home from bad luck. They're not supposed to be in your kitchen. They're actually supposed to be outside of your front door, but that's where it comes from. Another thing, I don't even know if this was a thing, but I know that 
when I was growing up, we always had a starfish, not a fake one, a real dried starfish in the bathroom. Turns out that's supposed to ward you from, ward your home or your business against malocchio, which is, if you're Italian, the number one form of bad luck is malocchio. Malocchio means the evil eye. Now, the evil eye, there's many, many different theories on the evil eye. Some people believe that people can give you the evil eye on purpose, that some people can do it with just a look, that they can give you a certain look, that they can give you that evil eye and pass on that bad luck to you. It's, it's similar to a curse, except it's not as intense as a curse. Some people believe that compliments, somebody can compliment you. And if you don't do the right thing to a compliment, that the evil eye is on you. But the evil eye also is something that happens inadvertently. It happens because of envy. That's why it's compliments is, is tied up in that Somebody can compliment you, but deep inside be thinking like, that should be mine or screw them. They don't deserve it. And that puts the malocchio on you. That's the belief. Now, here's where things get interesting. Here, I'm going to tell you about, remember I said everything kind of connects to luck? If you go through this book and you look at almost all of the wards, all the amulets, all of the, the uh, blessings, all of the, all of everything, I'd say 80% of them have to do with protecting or getting rid of Malokyo. That says a tremendous about, amount about a culture, I think. So, you know, heavy metal, you know, the throw up the goat or the devil sign or whatever, where you put your, your thumb and your middle two fingers together and you stick out your pointer finger and your pinky. That doesn't come from heavy, heavy metal music. That comes from Italian folk culture. That is called mano cornuto, or the horned hand. And that is a protection against malocchio. There's another version of it called mano fica, which you take your fist, make a fist, and instead of your thumb being outside of your fingers, put your thumb between your pointer finger and your middle finger. Make it stick out a little bit. That's manufica. You might be wondering what manufica translates to. Remember where I said everything in, in Italian culture boils down to food, sex, or luck? Let's go to number two here. Manufica means pussy hand. That symbol is supposed to represent a vagina, which I'm assuming that manucortu in some way is a representative of the male genitalia. So if you meet someone like that, you think there's these people that are called vipers, right? And the vipers are people who will give them a look. You. If you meet someone you think that's going to give you the evil eye or is going to curse you or just you need protection from, here's what you should do. Touch iron. This is all ores, not all of these things. You either touch iron, you spit on the ground three times in your pocket discreetly, make the manufica. Or with both your hands outside your pocket, give them the heavy metal sign. Make the sign of the cross on the roof of your mouth with your tongue. Or touch your genitals. <laughs> so I think what it boils down to maybe is that the genital, I'm removing a lot of the gender from this. The actual things say most of this stuff is related to male genitalia. You know, touch your genitals. It says if you're a man, touch your genitals. I think because for Italians, at least ancient Italians, the penis was a symbol of strength. So, oh, another thing you can do too is you can wear something made of red coral because for some reason red coral is protective. Or uh, there's the corno. Corno is the horn. You know, you've seen this necklace. The stereotypical Italian horn necklace, that's a ward against the malocchio. Now, you can get it in gold, or you can get it made of bone, or if you want to double up, you can get it made out of red coral, which, if you get the corno made out of red coral, kind of looks like a long red pepper, which is why pepperoncini or long red hot peppers are a ward against malocchio as well, because they look like a red corno. And that's why you can hang those up in front of your door. But my favorite of these, I don't own this, but I'm considering buying one of these just because it's cool, is Gobo. Gobo 
is also a ward against Malokio. This is a hunchback. Now, what's what's interesting about this, I don't know why the hunchback is considered protection against Malokio. Actually, you know what? I don't know why any of these things are. But the hunchback, the reason I like Gobol is because it is a, it puts a whole bunch of things all together. So the Gobol is, from the waist up, he's a hunchback dude. He's wearing a top hat and he's wearing a suit. I don't know why he's dressed like that. No idea. With his right hand, he's making the horned hand. He's throwing up the metal sign. With his left hand, he's holding a horseshoe. And the bottom half of his body is a red coral corno or Italian horn. So that's one, two, three, four, five different good luck charms all pushed into one. So I, for my money, if you're gonna get a if you're gonna get a ward against the Malokio, you gotta get a global. Apparently they make them as keychains. Speaking of of good luck charms, a hare or a rabbit's foot, right? Rabbit's foot is good luck, they say. Uh, not every rabbit's foot is good luck. The rabbit's foot that you're given is only good luck if it's given to you by the person who actually killed the rabbit. That makes sense, right? It wasn't lucky for the rabbit, but the person who killed the rabbit and ate it it was good luck. So buying it from Etsy or from some gas station, green dyed rabbit's foot, yeah, it's not going to do much for you. So that's that's Italian superstitions. I loved reading about that stuff. There's something about connecting with your culture, even if you're not super engaged in it. It's, you know, it's those moments where I saw things and I'm like, oh, yeah, we used to do that. And you can kind of try to piece together like, oh, I wonder if they know. Do they know why they're doing that? Do they know what that does? Like I said, things the way that they they evolve over centuries between cultures mixing and all this stuff. Who knows? Who knows? But you can pretend to put the pieces together. The last thing I want to share is, actually, this is funny. This is a, what I'm going to share is not funny, but you know, I've, I've mentioned many times, especially recently, that sometimes it takes a little while for things to sink in for me. Some basic things don't always sink in. So there's this quote, which I'm going to share with you. I'm going to read this quote to you. I've, I've found this a long time ago, probably six, seven years ago, when I read the book that it's from, which is a portrait of the artist as a young man by James Joyce. I was blown away by this passage, and I just recently rediscovered it. And when I read it, this week. And I was like, oh, I've got to do something with that. I had this weird moment where I'm like, whoa, where do I do that? What am I going to do? I don't do the whole social media sharing things. I try to save that for the stuff I make, like blogs or books or podcast episodes. And I was like, okay, wait, where, where would I share that? And I started going through this whole mental process. Maybe I could make like this sideshow, side podcast, where it's just short little episodes where I share little quotes that that I liked, you know, like I, I could call it like my commonplace book or something like that. I started to go through this, I'm talking about like a four or five minute process. And then the gear finally came all the way around. And I was like, that's what your podcast that you already have is about. <laughs> Sharing things that you find interesting. Oh, yeah. Okay. I already have a place to do that. <laughs> and that's why it was funny. So, this passage, it's, it's a little long. I don't mean uh, very long as in thousands of words, but it's more than a couple sentences. This is James Joyce describing eternity, which when I say that, maybe it doesn't fully hit. So he's talking about the idea of somebody going to hell and being in hell forever, and then asking the reader to actually think about what that means. What does it actually mean to be somewhere forever? And I think it's a really interesting exercise because we can't imagine eternity. We're linear creatures. We can't imagine what it means for something to occur continuously, forever. And trying to describe that, even what forever would look like, seems like an impossible task. But I think this passage, more than any other passage I have ever heard about any other description of eternity, gets close. 
to where you hear this and you start to understand the epicness of what forever, of what eternity means. So I hope you enjoy this. What must it be then to bear the manifold tortures of hell forever? Forever. For all eternity. Not for a year or for an age, but forever. Try to imagine the awful meaning of this. You've often seen the sand on the seashore. How fine are its tiny grains? And how many of those tiny little grains go to make up the small handful which a child grasps in its play? Now imagine a mountain of that sand, a million miles high, reaching from the earth to the farthest heavens, and a million miles broad, extending to remotest space and a million miles in thickness. And imagine such an enormous mass of countless particles of sand multiplied as often as there are leaves in the forest, drops of water in the mighty ocean, feathers on birds, scales on fish, hairs on animals, atoms in the vast expanse of the air. And imagine that at the end of every million years, a little bird came to that mountain and carried away in its beak a tiny grain of that sand. How many millions upon millions of centuries would pass before that bird carried away even a square foot of that mountain? How many eons upon eons of ages before it carried away all? Yet at the end of that immense stretch of time, not even one instant of eternity could be said to have ended. At the beginning of all those billions and trillions of years, eternity would have scarcely begun. And if that mountain rose again after it had been all carried away, and if the bird came again and carried it all away again, grain by grain, and if it so rose and sank as many times as there are stars in the sky, Atoms in the air, drops of water in the sea, leaves on the trees, feathers upon birds, scales upon fish, hairs upon animals. At the end of all those innumerable risings and sinkings of that immeasurably vast mountain, not one single instant of eternity could be said to have ended. Even then, at the end of such a period After that eon of time, the mere thought of which makes our very brain reel dizzily, eternity would scarcely have begun. God, every time I read that, I think about it. You know what I also think about? There's an episode, a recent episode of Doctor Who. I think it's the second to last season where Peter Capaldi plays the doctor and he's trapped inside this prison where he's continually dying and being recloned and dying and being recloned and there's no way out the only way he can see out is there's this one passageway that's made out of there's a block in this passageway that's blocked by pure diamond and the only way out is for him to evade this thing that's coming to kill him, and to get to this wall of mountain and to punch it with his bare fists until the thing kills him. And then he's resurrected again. And then to go and do the same thing, each time having to figure out what he's doing because he's not waking up with his memories. And getting to this wall and getting in one or two punches with his bare fist against Diamond. And how many millions and millions of years it takes for him to break through that diamond. That's what I think about too. So that's that's pretty much everything I got. It was a lot of stuff, I feel like. I don't know. I had a lot of stuff, a lot of things on my mind, a lot of interesting things that I ran across. I say ran across, like I'm just casually walking down the street. Like, oh, you know what? Hey, <laughs> that's funny seeing you here, idea. No, I'm, my week, I literally spend my week reading and watching things, hoping to discover something that's worth sharing. I love that. I love that my purpose for the week 
I have other things that I do, but my main purpose for the week is to be curious and to indulge that curiosity. I love that. So before before we get out of here, I did not forget we have an album. Funny thing happened with the album recommendation this week. I started, I was going to recommend one album, and then I detoured onto a second album. And that second album, I just enjoyed listening to more this week. So that's going to be the album that I recommend. And that album is Three Imaginary Boys, the first album by The Cure, which, if you're American, you may have bought under the name Boys Don't Cry. Because for a while there, they used to sell the album as Boys Don't Cry instead of Three Imaginary Boys. It's a different cover, too. The Boys Don't Cry that I bought, I think it had a pyramid on it and, like, some palm trees. But Three Imaginary Boys is this bright pink album with, like, a pink refrigerator on it. Anyways, great album. I I don't even know where to begin with this album. I love this Cure album because it's so... It's so unfinished and so raw, but there's all of the best things about The Cure show up. There's things in, in songs that you hear and you go, oh, I love that. Oh, I forgot to mention also, the original version of the album didn't have Boys Don't Cry on it. That was just a single. It was released on its own. So if you find this album, you might find it without Boys Don't Cry on it. But there's so many other good songs. 1015, Accuracy, Fire in Cairo. These songs are just so wonderful, but they're a little bit, I don't know, my, this is going to come up a lot when I recommend albums. I like music that's a little broken or a little wonky. I like music that's not completely polished and perfected. I like it that it's a little bit off. And you'll hear that in this album. Everything you recognize as a cure immediately but there are just things that, I don't know, they're just so charming because they're so, sometimes the songs are so sparse. But I do have to warn you, if you're going to listen to this on streaming, which I most of us are going to, let's be honest, you're probably going to find like a ton of different versions of this. In fact, on Spotify, there's two versions of this album. One is like a, let's say it's like a, 2005 or 1995 remaster and then there's a deluxe version personally i i hate the deluxe versions of of albums this is when you go to listen to an album that had 10 songs on it that you love but now there are like 43 songs because it's full of demos and live versions and all this stuff i love having the extra music if i want it but i want to be able to just sit down and listen to the actual album and Sometimes it becomes very difficult because in this, for example, here, neither of these versions of the album have the actual songs that were on the original album. The deluxe one has them, but it's mixed in with all this other stuff. And the remastered version that's on there that looks like it's the right album length has like four songs I've never heard before that, to be honest, aren't even that good. And it's missing some other songs. So what I'm going to try to do is when I put this album into the Spotify playlist, I'm going to pull the songs that are on the original album and only put those into the Spotify playlist. So that if you want to hear the actual album the way it was made, you can go to the Spotify playlist and just play through those songs and hear the actual album the way that Robert Smith intended it. If not, go ahead, go listen to the deluxe album. If you want to hear, you know, like the the version where they played piano instead of guitar and the drummer was playing on a cardboard box and it was live in Glastonbury, who cares? Just give me the original, the one that made me love this album. So that's my album for the week. Oh, another thing, something I keep forgetting to do. I have a newsletter. It's not one of those premium newsletters. It's just a normal newsletter. The reason I'm bringing it up is I just kind of refocused it and restarted it. And it's very similar in, in a lot of ways to what I do here. I try to be very open here and just very personal. So the newsletter is also very personal. And one of the things I do, or I'm going to do, I haven't even done it yet in the new iteration, is send out a letter every once in a while talking about all the books that I've read in the last month. Just you know, whatever I have to say about them. Maybe a paragraph I'm thinking. 
So if that sounds interesting to you, I think it might because I talk about books here a lot. Go, I'll put a link in the description, sign up for it, and uh, then you'll get them. It's only like, I think I only send it out maybe at most twice a month, usually once a month. So if you're looking for something casual, you know, you just want a casual relationship with me, sign up for the newsletter. Okay, now I'm actually going to leave. This is the podcast version of It Matters But It Doesn't. You can also read my blog at itmattersbutitdoesn't.com. And if you'd like to support this podcast because you find some sort of value in it, then you can find a link in the description of each episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you when I see you.